had the chance to change your fate. Oh, would you? Would you? <laughs> would you? I never saw that movie. Brave? Brave, yeah. Was it DreamWorks? Absolutely not. That was Pixar. That was my next guess. Yeah. Scotland, right? Yeah. Scotland. Macbeth. Macbeth. <laughs> yeah. It's been a minute since we recorded. I think the last one we did was Fantastic Beasts. And the Secrets of Dumbledore, Secrets Plural. And we discovered what they were in that podcast and talked about different ways to enjoy different things. Yes. But today we're here to talk about a little film by uh, the same filmmaker who made my favorite film of 2019, which is something we talked a lot about when we first started this podcast. Yeah. Lighthouse. A filmmaker's name is Robert Eggers, the auteur, historian, craftsman, artist, and uh, his new film called The Northman. The Northman. Out with focus features. I don't think it started at A24, but A24 has kind of funded and marketed his last two films, The Witch and The Lighthouse. And now, here we are with The Northman. Yeah, I wonder how that partnership evolved or dissolved I'm, I'm sure i'm sure he's gonna go back to a24 at some point i i, I would almost bet money on it yeah i'm sure they have a good working relationship but it's like uh who's the, so david laurie does bigger budget films with like disney and then he'll go back and do something with a24 and he goes back and forth he yeah. did like ghost story then he went to pete's dragon and then back to green knight so yeah, interesting that focus features was willing to shell out the cash for this i think it was a reported budget of 90 million yeah. Which is crazy. I think The Witch was 25, or sorry, The Lighthouse is 25, mm-hmm. and The Witch was like five. Mm-hmm. So, bit of an evolution there. I think Robert has said he will probably not do something on this scale again. Not because he doesn't have dreams and, and the vision to to do that, but because of uh, the lack of creative control over every little thing, you know, because that's what he likes. Yeah. The yeah, studio, true. Focus Features, you know, had a, and the rest of the funding... Yeah, people they had things they wanted to change. That's interesting because what I, what I heard from him was yeah the lack of being able to be in creative control is important to him. But also one of the things that made this film more difficult was all the practical camera movements and effects and stuff. And he said he said that is something that he wants to pursue further. Yeah, and make potentially the production of films even harder in the future. So he he asks a lot of his crew and his act, his actors. <laughs> he sure does. Um, we'll get into that in a second. But if you want to hear more about who Robert Eggers is as an auteur, he's also the one who coined the phrase horror adjacent, which is something we use a lot on this podcast. Go back and listen to episode 11 or 12, which is our Lighthouse podcast. Yeah. But yeah, Robert Eggers, he's an auteur filmmaker, auteur filmmaker. He loves doing his research. He actually enjoys that process as much as filmmaking, he says. And for this, he researched a crap ton out of Norse mythology and Viking culture. You can probably speak to that further. Yeah, he partnered with a couple individuals whose names I cannot remember, but actual historians for the time and place, which is the general Scandinavian region that encompasses everything from Norway to the Ukraine and to Scotland. And they helped Robert really flesh out this 10th century Viking culture. So I can't remember what the kingdom in the film is called, but it is, it ends up in Iceland 
but I'm not sure where it started. I think it was off the coast of Norway because one of the plot points yeah. is that the king of Norway essentially kicked out the occupants that were there and they relocated to Iceland. I was going to say the guy that wrote this with him that he consulted, Sion, Sion. is also the same guy that uh, did Lamb. Remember yeah, that? I've, I didn't know that until yeah. I looked it up. Because I was like, I recognize his name because he consulted on the mythology in Lamb as well. He wasn't credited as a writer, though, was he? No. I think Gustav no, no, or whatever. No, he was. He was? Yeah. Yeah, Sion is an interesting guy, too. He's been... We um, talked about him on the Lamb episode. Did we really? Yeah. I can't remember at all. <laughs> but he's a famous author and... Uh-huh. Icelandic author who a lot of people who are interested in that kind of, like I said, mythology consult with him because he's like kind of like a the go-to person and he usually has so much knowledge that it that caters to the craft and creation of the story and the script that they are crediting him as the writers for those films i think he was friends with bjork as well which is how it's a little background yeah that's robert eggers and he he's super into the history and, and the digging and the researching and I don't think then that plays into how he shoots his movies because he's all about keeping things as realistic and grounded and practical as possible. Yeah. Which when you make that choice and he was attributing this film to like a Revenant or films that shoot on film. I need to double check to make sure he shot this on film. He did. He did. Okay. I checked. Makes sense. He probably is one of those like film purists. Yeah. Which he, makes sense. Not Not even counting the lighthouse. Yeah. So... He's like, the reason that those films aren't made very often... Oh, 1917. So the reason that we don't see films like 1917, The Revenant, or this film, Northman, often is because they're really hard to make on the production side. Because a lot of things are switched to digital. People are using screens a lot of the time. You don't even have to be on location. This is all in location, all shot, (laughs) like like with as as many practical effects as possible. When you see... Alex Skarsgård scale a wall in this, you're actually seeing him scale a wall. It's that kind of intense filmmaking and demand of both your crew and your actors that really plays into the 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 feeling and the emotion of this movie. The immersion. The immersion. But uh, the also the emotion that you're you're getting, you're receiving from what you're viewing on the screen. And he also spoke about like why he likes one takes. Did you, did you hear that? That was fascinating. I probably read it at some point, but he prefers one takes, which are called in the film industry. Oneers. Wow. <laughs> little, little tip for you. <laughs> <laughs> I hate even saying that, but that's what they're called. Um, yeah, he prefers one take, uh, shots because he like he likes to be able to see all of the action and the movement instead of fast cutting with multiple camera angles caught from one camera to another camera to another camera he likes people to see every single action uh, and he referred to crouch and tiger hidden dragon as just one of the many inspirations for enjoying one take uh, action sequences because you can really feel everything and you can track and see what's happening rather than having to cut very quickly to kind of like hide the fact that you're faking action if that when makes sense when your choreography sucks yeah <laughs> so yeah, it's really really demanding. He said countless hours went in from like the prep work, the choreographing, 
the actors working out, you know, the, the physical demand, the, the choreography mixed with like working with the camera team, the set building team and them having to make specific things that the camera can work around and go through. And, and all this while they're shooting, like we were just saying on 35 millimeter film, which is crazy. And I could tell, cause I wasn't going to say about the look of the film, which is something also to be spoken of and why, you know, there's kind of more of a tangible look as far as the grain of the picture, but it's more about how the camera moves as you're watching the film. I, I could tell immediately that it was shot on film because you can, you can kind of do less with a camera when it's shot on film. You can't like swing it around and do all this crazy stuff with it. So a lot of the shots in this film are very cleverly positioned and in motion to the point where you can, like, you can tell it's kind of like on an arm or a jib or like a, a dolly or some sort of car or truck or something. And that's about all you can do with a camera when it comes to film is, you know, put it on an arm or a dot, like a jib or something and lift it up and down and back and forth and in and out. And, but you can't like do a handheld. I mean, you can, if, if, you really want to, but can't throw it around. Yeah. You can't do a lot. So he very cleverly shot this film and then edited it in such a way that made it the monster that it is, which I thought was just another thing that attributed to him being an auteur, being able to successfully pull that off and impress people that are like, wow, this is actually a very well-made film. And you know, if you actually sit down and tear it apart because being limited and then being able to thrive with your limitations I think really speaks to the quality of his filmmaking. Yeah. And he attributes a lot of that to the cinematographer as well. Like he almost like his, his brother and brother in blood, his blood brother who is right there with him crafting the look of everything that he's doing. Jaron Blaschke. They've been working together there. Well, for Robert's entire career back, even predating into his short films like brothers and the other ones that he has released to the world. But yeah, to further your point about him and his team's vision and executing that, they also shoot single camera, which I don't, I don't think you mentioned. Not only like preferring to do it in single takes and to have the perspective of a single camera, but they, they literally only use one camera. There's never a second unit. There's never coverage shot in a Robert Eggers film, which makes everything incredibly specific. And his vision is often translated one-to-one to the screen. He's talked about how he came pretty close on The Witch, but it wasn't quite what he wanted. The lighthouse, he, he got very, very close to what he had inva- imagined in his head. And I like to think with The Northman, he got pretty close too. Because when you don't have any coverage or anything like that in post-production, you don't have any wiggle room when a studio comes in and says, we want to change up your vision because there's nothing you can do except trim the the shots that you have. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But but yeah, he and Jaron are two sides of the same coin, I yeah. think, when it comes to establishing what is a Robert Eggers film. The style, yeah. Yeah. It's almost like they can't work apart. I've heard that about Spielberg as well. He does have a few DPs that he works with, but um Spielberg often prefers to work with his team, you know, because it's like it can't be a Spielberg film without that team of people. Yeah. Exactly. Rounding out his team is frequent collaborators. Luis Ford is his editor once again. Yep. They work together on The Lighthouse. And I think I the article I read, I can't remember who it was from. Might have been The, was it the Atlantic? I can't remember. Yeah, I think but, it was. But uh, he talked about the, it was set in the edit, whoever 
did the interview, it was spent with him and Luis in the editing room. And they're in post-production. They sound like they have a, a similar symbiotic mind meld kind of relationship where, because like you said, Robert likes to be very involved with the editing of his film. And if you're going to be vulnerable in the cut with someone like that, that you have to really trust them and you have to be really good together. And so Luis Ford seems to be that person that he trusts with his baby. And I think she even helped him sort out specifically in the first yeah. act when the, when the studio came in and said, we got to speed this up. This yeah. is, this is a little much Robert. Yeah. We're trying to make a commercially viable blockbuster here and they couldn't figure it out. And then I think Luis uh, finally found a solution. Yeah. And the editing is wicked in this film. It's so good. Yeah. Like I was saying, being able to take those limitations of what you've done in production and then edit it in such a way to make it as compelling as it was. And then, of course, the sound plays a huge part of that. We should talk about the sound team. But lots of ADR mixers, Foley artists, re-recorded mixers. Then there's the boom op. Who's, there's only one of them. He's probably there on production. The boom operator's name is... Oh, I can't even pronounce that. Lean Amborstotir. Yeah. 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 Sound designer Jimmy Boyle might mm-hmm. be one of the... Yeah. And then the score is also like crucially important because the music in this film, coupled with what you're seeing and how loud it really hits you, really plays into what you're seeing. Yeah, absolutely. And he did not work with Mark Corvin this time. He did The Witch and The Lighthouse with Mark. And if you've seen those films, <laughs> you know how uh, unique the sounds Mark Corvin came up with for those films can be. Yeah. But this time he's working with Robin Carolyn. Yeah. And Sebastian Gainsborough, who worked on The Handmaiden, which is pretty cool. Robin doesn't have any other credits, so I'm curious what their, how their partnership came about. But they, they nailed it. The, the music in this film is... Amazing. Is very good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's constantly pushing, elevating what you're seeing on the screen. And I love, I love that the use and the introduction of sort of new instruments as, as the movie progresses, there's new things, new elements. They keep it very grounded when it's supposed to be grounded or like there's a battle scene happening. And then, and then when they do something a little bit more fantastical, cause there is some like mythical elements happening, they introduce other things like synth and, uh, like electric piano and stuff like that. So a lot more drums than in the other Robert Eggers yeah. films. Yeah. And they even had a little bit of throat singing, I think. With yeah, the probably. uh <laughs> the male witch later on in the film is doing a little bit of that, which is cool. Always love to hear some throat singing. Yeah. But yeah. Real quick I did want to say production design. And back from the witch in the lighthouse is Craig Lathrop, who is another Robert Eggers muse. He helps him establish that look for the film in the production design. Because every little detail in this film is we mentioned how Robert loves his historical accuracy, but when you're creating everything, you know, from nothing to uh, fill out that world, you have to credit those people. Mm-hmm. Craig and costume designed by Linda Muir, set de- decoration, Pancho Chamorro and Neam Coulter. Yeah. And then uh, I think Lars Knudsen helped him produce this film as well. They work together. Anyway, back to the cast. So who is in... This film, as far as the actors go. <laughs> Who acts 
in this movie. This is a very talented group of individuals. Yes, it is. Led by Alexander Skarsgård as Amleth, the hero or anti-hero, the main character in this film. <laughs> and everybody knows Alex. He was, I think he blew up through True Blood, right? It was the vampire show. Oh, I didn't know that. Who also is, is character in that film is a 10th century Viking or something that became a vampire and oh. just lived for a thousand years. How funny. And his name in that film is, or in that show is Eric Northman. Oh, really? <laughs> so it was faded. Uh, yeah, he's been in a bunch of stuff. He was in that Tarzan movie that he, no one talks it's about. It's funny because he uh, was in Big Little Lies with Nicole Kidman. He was actually the person that was the abusive husband to her. <laughs> Isn't that funny? I think Nicole Kidman is also in film been abused by Stellan Skarsgård. At least I read that somewhere. It was like a movie called Dogville or something uh, in the early 2000s. So difficult history for that family. Abusing Nicole Kidman? Yeah. Well. Or Nicole Kidman <laughs> abusing them. Speaking of Nicole Kidman, she was also in this movie. Yeah. Queen Gudrun. Not sure if that's how you pronounce her name, but Good she effort. was Good effort. the mother of Amleth and the widow of Ethan Hawke, who is played by, or who is Ethan Hawke, who <laughs> plays uh, King... Who is Ethan Hawke for King 500? Arvindil. The War Raven. He is the father of Amleth who dies and is betrayed by Clay's Bang. Man, I hope that's how you say his name. Clay's? Clay's. It's C-L-A-E-S. Clay's. But he's a famous Danish actor. He plays Fjolner the Brotherless, who is the one who betrays his brother. That's why he's brotherless. (laughs) (laughs) Seizes the kingdom for himself. And what is funny is that it's... I immediately thought it was Adam Driver. Really? And then I was like, no, he's a little bit too old and his... But I could totally see Adam Driver in that role, you know? Yes. Yeah. But Clay's is amazing. Yeah, he was great. I had never seen him before, so. Yeah, I, I haven't seen his films, but I've seen him pop. Pop off? Pop off, no. He's been in a lot of stuff that I've wanted to see and haven't seen. Like, there's a film called The Square. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this, yeah, he was great in this film. I really dug him. Yeah, I'd love to watch more of him. He's great. We also have Anya Taylor-Joy as Olga of the Birch Forest. She becomes... Returning for her second collaboration with Eggers. Yeah. She, she basically got her start with Eggers' film, The Witch, as an actress. So it's cool to see her come back. That was huge. And, do this. and I, I think it was funny. She mentioned something. I read something about how she asked about The Lighthouse when he was making that and uh, playing a mermaid. And Robert was like, this is one mermaid you don't want to play, <laughs> Anya. Yeah, and I think he, he had several other returning witch cast members uh, for this film in minor roles, including the mother and father. Uh, but also we have Gustav Lind, who played Thorier the Proud, which was Fjolner's first son. And then Elliot Rose was Gunner, who played the younger son after he was with Nicole Kidman. Willem Dafoe, Heimer the Fool, a smaller role than in The Lighthouse, but equally as memorable, you might say. Well, a lot of dick swinging went on in this one. Yeah. It's funny how recognizable Willem Dafoe's skull is. Yeah. <laughs> and that's pretty much the main cast, except for Bjork. Yeah. First acting role in like 20. two decades. Yeah, over 20 years. She played the Seeress, a witch who sets Amleth on his path of vengeance after yes. him living for many years as yeah. a vagabond or some kind of mercenary for hire. Cool. In six sentences, Do you want to explain what happens in this film? Yeah, count me out. Ready? First sentence. (laughs) King Arvindel returns home from pillaging who knows where as a Viking, and he is betrayed very quickly by his brother, Fjolner. That's first sentence. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) 
Uh, Amleth escapes. He gets away and lives for, who knows, 20, 30 years uh, somewhere else. And he is eventually set back, like I said, on his path of vengeance by the Cirrus. After training with his father and promising that he'll avenge him if anything ever happens to him. Yeah, he has never forgotten his vow or, or his uh, fate. It, and the only thing that's changed is that he is now ripped. He's he's jacked. So that's your sentence number three. He Yeah, he comes, he comes that's his sentence number three. He's jacked and he returns <laughs> on his path of vengeance. But he instead of going back to his home, he is going to Iceland because Fjolnir has been <laughs> deported by uh, the King of Norway and demoted to uh, some random little outpost on Iceland. It's a no man's land, essentially. Then he falls in love with Anifelir Joy. Yeah, along, along the, the way, way, he falls in love. Okay, now what's your sentence number five? Sentence five is that he, over the course of maybe the better part of a week, lives as a slave to the Fjolnir family, witnessing like how that family interacts, uh, including his mother, who is the bride of Fjolnir now. And he, over that week, or however long it is, uh, creates chaos on the little villa they have and uh that drives us towards our finale mm -hmm. the sixth sentence where he takes ultimate revenge on his uncle uh inadvertently killing his mother and uh younger not brother and After he uh, killed his cousin brother yeah he uh olga crother anya gets away and Anya impregnated with twins yeah will carry on amleth's line his blood but amleth dies on the top of the volcano dueling his uncle to the death where he beheads his uncle but in the process takes his fatal wound well done spoilers by the way and then yeah. here's a big spoiler uh we learn like well under the third act that essentially his dad may have not been the king that he thought that he was uh, like the the morally good king that Nicole Kidman, uh, you know, lost and cried about. He saw his mother kind of being carried away, and she was screaming. He thought, and then she claims that the brother that took over what, what was his name? Thormir. Fjolnir. Fjolnir. Fjolnir was uh, actually the good king, and that she begged him to kill uh, Amalus's father, and. It was like a huge shock. And she was sort of against Amalith coming back at all, and she thought he was dead, so... Yeah, it seems like she... It was a big twist. Well, regardless of how she felt about him as a kid, she doesn't really care about him now. She cares about her family now, her son with Fjolnir and Fjolnir. Yeah. But yeah, it was a big plot twist to kind of come to find that. It was essentially Lion King up to that point, <laughs> right? And then, and then to find out Mufasa was a terrible ruler. <laughs> Which yeah. would be a shock to Disney fans. Did we already say that this is what? No. Uh... no. And that was something that I wanted to bring up. So this, I've heard critics, you know, kind of critique it saying, <laughs> this is basically a remake of Lion King and Lion King is a remake of Hamlet. And so this is just kind of, it's been done. We've seen this story before. But then you were like, no, Shakespeare ripped off this for Hamlet. Yeah, I don't know where ripped off story. becomes homage, but this is the original, you know. <laughs> well, the whole time I was watching this, I was like, like every time they say his name, Amalith, like I was thinking it sounds like Hamlet, you know, like Amalith. Yeah, like, so, Amlet. Yeah. Amlet, Hamlet. <laughs> so I was like, wow, there's a lot of homage there. Yeah, but this was the original because uh, this took place in eight, 
the year 895 or something like that? I think it was 914 AD, but I think the story was written in uh, somewhere around 12th century. Or that's where the compendium was from the Scandinavian uh, author or scribe. I'm not sure. And Shakespeare was in the 1500s, right? I think 14th or 15th. Yeah. Yeah. But he, yeah, so he wrote Hamlet based on Amleth. Yeah. And then, you know, Shakespeare, everyone takes off Shakespeare. Yeah. So. so Hamlet's been adapted, you know, a number of times, but it's never been quite like this. Yeah. And this was, I think, I don't know how faithful they were to the original story here either. They're, I'm sure Robert Eggers and Sion uh, took a lot of liberties to make their own version of the story. Robert Eggers, I wouldn't put it past him to be as faithful as he possibly could, you know, because he... Well, he's so faithful to period, but I think I read that the story takes some liberties is a little different because the original text is like you know ancient. Yeah, but yeah. So it is essentially Hamlet or Lion King or something like you know uh, what's the other one, the Scottish one, Braveheart, that kind of thing. A classic revenge tale. Yeah, but and then in spoiler again, he dies in the end. Yeah, when you what after is... I mean he, he beheads. <laughs> His uncle and also gets stabbed at the same time. Yeah, Na- he's naked. He's presented with the choice to leave with his new love and his unborn children or to finish out his course of vengeance. But as with a lot of these ancient tales, not the least of which Shakespeare, what he drew from is that, that through line of fate and not being able to escape your fate. So yeah, Amleth decides he cannot and he goes to fulfill his destiny. Fate played a huge theme in this Film, fate, choice, destiny. Yes. Well, all that stuff. All those, all those anthemic things. Those fruitful trees of storytelling. Yes. Star Wars. So. What do you think about it? I really liked it. Like I said, Robert Eggers made my favorite film of 2019, beating out Midsummer for that year. This is a very different film than Lighthouse, to be fair. Yes. And that's, that's kind of what i will say i think at this point it will be in my top 10 for sure of 2022 which may be premature but i don't think so as i think it's that good um, yeah <laughs> this is a quality film there are very rarely uh films that you will see that are like this the revenant is like a perfect comparison just you're you're literally in the mud for countless minutes on end with these characters the action the sound the overall experience the music the fantastical mythological elements that are at play and constantly reoccurring and shouting at you and it's it's just like a a quality like beautiful and also kind of horrific at times just movie that we do not get very often and so I, I couldn't recommend it enough to people. It's also, I'd say, the most accessible Robert Eggers film that he's made so far. And you were asking me, like, how would I compare it with The Witch and the Lighthouse? And I'm like, I I need to see The Witch again. Um, well, I was curious specifically about The Witch because The Lighthouse is a film that is incredibly unique. Yeah. And I don't think anything can be compared to it. But The Witch is something that's like, it is this tale, this kind of like parable, you know-esque story that I think this, and I think think of other films, like you mentioned David Lowry's The Green Knight is another film I thought of. Mm -hmm. Those are films that are all kind of comparable to me. Mm -hmm. 
Um, which is why I was curious where, where this film would line up against those films versus the lighthouse, because it is v- so different. The lighthouse is like an abstract painting. Yeah. You know, and this is also abstract at times, but you know, but in very like pointed moments. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, but, it's largely digestible. Like yeah. you said, this reminded me, you know, of gladiator or Braveheart or something like that, that, you know, it's, it's like that with these crazy Robert Eggers, fantastical moments like artistic liberty thrown in throughout, you know, or Bjork as a prophet kind of thing shows up and you're like, what's going on? Is a this- witch. Yeah. Um, but I was, I was saying it's, it's sort of hard for me to compare because this is a large budget action revenge film. It's like, a, it is a blockbuster time, time period piece. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so the witch was a very low budget. It was his first film. It was like a very different thing. So it's really difficult for me to compare the films like I couldn't, I couldn't give you a one, two, three at this point. If I was like judging purely on film, like the quality of a film, regardless of budget or limitations or, you know, the production that went into that film, and regardless of all those things, I would say the witch would be last and this would be second. And last. Well, that'd be all that would be left would be your personal interest, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that, no, that's exactly what I'm saying. So it would just be, well, also me judging like on the quality like, cause this had so much money behind it. It had, it had, uh, uh, the constant imagery of returning to, uh, your family tree and the metaphorical branches that are broken off and extended in the lineage of your, your family and your kingship, like that kind of thing. And that was all done in, a, you know, computer graphic imagery and then transcending and, and, and going through, you know, the open door in the sky, like toward heaven and undescending on a Valkyrie, like who's riding a, a winged horse, you know, like that kind of thing. You, you don't get that in the witch you get, you barely get a talking goat like in the shadows and then a naked girl running to some other naked girls around a fire. That's like, it's a masterpiece. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it's really hard for me to compare, but I, I love Robert Eggers. I love his style. I love what he's doing. I love, I love the effort and the quality that he puts in. Like it seems like the never ending degree of passion that he has for these subjects just are so apparent when you watch his films. Like it's a, it's almost like a visceral experience and it's undeniable. It's an undeniably great film. So yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be up there like in maybe like the first three films of the year for me. Uh, right now it's, it's second to everything everywhere all at once, but yeah, the Northman's right there at number two for me so far. And I think it will continue to be those two films unless something beats it. I like something I may not even know about. So, uh, yeah, I loved it. I, you, you gotta go see it in the theater, like with a loud sound system, please. Yeah. Well said. What'd you think? Yeah, exactly. You nailed it. You killed it. All those things and more. I don't know how much we talked about Robert's uh, developmental years, about his formative years on the the Witch Podcast, but now he came to love history and mythology from every cult, like any culture. But yeah, I would say those those world building elements are what always draw me into his films, both through the narrative and through the the very tactile production that he builds. Mm. But I, I love this film dearly as well. I, I think I'm still partial even after I've seen it twice now. And I, uh, I think I still love the lighthouse and the witch 
more for different reasons, but specifically because they're smaller and they have the freedom to be weirder. Yeah. And we mentioned kind of while we were coming back from the theater how there are, there's just brief moments throughout the film where you can tell that like maybe the studio had a like Robert change a couple things or add a line of exposition or mm-hmm. like cut down on what could have been an extended sequence mm-hmm. in a dream or something. Mm-hmm. And I wish I got that. And if we got that, it like that three hour Robert Eggers cut, it could be literally like, you know, one of my favorite films of all time. It would be my favorite Robert. Eggers At least film. the Eggers cut, please. Yeah. We probably won't get that. And I think he's, he's satisfied with where they've ended up and that's fine. That's, that's totally cool. But, uh, even though this film will definitely be top three for me of the year. Yeah. I just, I, I want to see him, I think just half total. I want, I always want to see the director and the storyteller and the entire crew have control over their product and mm-hmm. commercial success be damned <laughs> because we've seen how amazing things can be when caution is thrown to the wind. Not always, but, but a lot of the time. And Robert Eggers is one of the people I think that can give that to us. So as much as I loved it, um, and I love it more every time I see it, I'm probably going to see it again in theaters. Uh, it's like it's probably not my favorite Robert Eggers film because the bar is very high, especially for a surrealist high art lover like high art, me. High art lover. Yeah, just give me as much weirdness as you can. Yeah. But honestly, this is on par with with everything else. Like the performances were incredible. Skarsgård was legendary, yeah. and I think this was just as much his baby as the rest of the crew because he had been wanting to make a Viking film for years Hmm. and Robert Eggers presented this possibility and he jumped at it and he nailed it and he owned it. Hmm. And Nicole Kidman was amazing. Her like, she was way better than I thought she'd be honestly. Yeah. Smaller role, but she has that obviously the whole film kind of hinges on her scene with Amleth when she's revealing her true nature, her contempt for uh, his father and like everything, everything about it was amazing. So I would strongly suggest, you know, you people should see it in a theater and it's worth it. Whatever your local theater is charging you for a movie these days, see it in the biggest theater you can. Cause yeah, even not, more so see it in the loudest movie theater you can. Yeah. I think that really adds to the experience for sure. Cause like you said, not too many people make movies like this. No. And those are the movies I think that are always worth seeing the most. Yeah. Like that's why we loved everything everywhere all at once. Yes. It is unique and it stands out on itself and it has its own identity. So I think it's been years since I've respected a film as much as everything everywhere all at once, but this is equally as respectable just in a different way. Yeah. But I've never seen a movie like everything everywhere all at once. I've just never seen a movie like that. So, so if, if I had to pull, like get my hopes up for one of those to like rise to some level of, acclaim i think i would say as far as like the craft of filmmaking goes in its entirety which is what we kind of talked about when we were talking about like a best picture nominee right or a winner i would i would love for the northman to have recognition because it is uh the complete package yeah for what you want when you're when you're seeing i i'm not speaking for everyone but i think for like people that love movies and want to be not only like challenged but entertained and also to see something that they don't see all the time. I think this represents all those things. Yeah. I don't know if this was you sending me in that article or if I was reading a different article about it, but I heard that this may be the most accurate historically uh, Viking film ever made. 
thing that has Vikings in it or about Vikings yeah. ever made. I want to say without a doubt. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't think usually Viking his movies historically have been uh, keen on historical accuracy. I don't know about the show. There's a the this, and really this had, popular. This had no like helmet with horns on it. Yeah. This is not that this is not that kind of Viking. This is like but it had everything else you could ever want. It had the gods, like the witch the witchcraft, like the volcano, the Valkyrie in the sky. Yeah, had, all the stuff with Odin. It had yeah, the the constant talking about and worshipping of Odin and the villages and the berserker people who like, you know, were being empowered they they reminded me like a lot of like native americans in that way like when you when you look at a lot of the things that native american culture pulls from taking from like the earth and the the animal kingdom around them that they they are so like often in unison with like i feel like a lot of this this mythology or, or this kind of culture was based around their kind of like tangibility of the things that were around them, you know, like worshiping the crow or the spirit of the crow or whatever it was called. The raven. The raven, yeah. Yeah, I read that Robert wanted to have a lot of those berserkers be just completely naked. Yeah. <laughs> but he couldn't because it was like, you know, he, he, we he said sell. there was one thing the studio said no to and it was like full frontal nudity. Like <laughs> he said straight penis, I think. Like <laughs> <laughs> just big hang. You know what? Yeah, because a lot of our, our pubic regions in this film are obscured or there. Or digital. Did you read that? No. Literally, the genitalia in the final battle scene oh, on the vol- on the volcano. Really? All the all the genitalia you're seeing are, is digitized. That makes sense because I read that Skarsgård, what he took home from the set was his, his uh, he took home his like thong or whatever <laughs> that he wore for that scene. So he, clearly, it's he's not hanging dong yeah. in that fight, but it's so <laughs> it's set it's so good. I mean, it's still like you know. You don't, yeah. And we haven't even really talked about all the other like layers of this film thematically that you could pull out of it. Yeah, but totally. We have not such an intense display, like you said, of like mastery. this kind of feral, mastery. primal masculinity. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And yeah, I, I, some of the stuff in this film, I've I've never seen portrayed as well. Like when it comes to, like you said, like that that feral masculinity, like shouting, like like animals and pretending to be a wolf and. Just like, just like screaming, like because you're you have like this a energy rage. or something. There's rage, yeah. Apparently, that's like what used to happen too. They used to basically get high on something, and then they would pretend and dance around a fire like they were wolves, and that they would run into these battles basically on drugs yeah. and with no fear, and just take over people. Yep, that makes a lot of sense. World's pretty fucked up, you know, historically speaking, and even now, it's crazy. It's crazy watching this film as I was thinking as I was watching it. Like it's, it's crazy how like this is humanity. Like like yeah. this this is humanity just as much as corporate world capitalist bullshit is Doritos. also humanity in that same way. Like you still have people acting as animals trying to take over other people. Yeah, it's the same thing now. The more things it's change, it's just done in a more politically correct kind of way that is more manipulative and and honestly secretive yeah the times change but it's always really the same story people are still cutting off other people's heads all the time it's just yeah it's just money now instead of actual i'm not gonna take i'm not gonna take your life i'm just gonna take your quality of life how's that corporate headhunters i've never seen a nose cut off though like this (laughs) 
Not since the days of Voldemort have I seen a nose missing in such a way. Did get a little Voldemort action there. No, yeah, I agree. I have not seen that. It was cool seeing his nose missing underneath his helmet that came all the way down to yeah, where his nose was supposed space. to be. <laughs> it was pretty comedic. Uh, there's some. There's like, a funny irony there, you know. Yeah. Some interesting moments of comedy in this film. Yeah, I was laughing during parts that I shouldn't have been laughing at, specifically the Willem Dafoe head <laughs> talking. <laughs> I was like, "You did laugh." I was laughing a lot during that scene. It was funny. Well, there, it, it is like. Yeah just kind of situationally comedic it's a little defoe his sword was cool the like the Draugur. the idea behind that the as night well blade. yeah that was sick because like he, he couldn't unsheath it uh during the day or like yeah, as soon as dawn hit he can only yeah. do it during the night so there were like four or five titles in the film that broke it up mm-hmm. and the fourth one being like the night blade feeds was so badass yeah I was super like, cool that's awesome but yeah that was drought Draugur. Is that like an actual yeah like sword that was like written about? People? Yeah, I don't know if it was if that's from like another f- piece of folklore or if that was from Amleth's story, but that was so cool. It is like a thing, yeah. It's like it was like a Lord of the Rings kind of thing for a second. Yeah, that whole mound dweller sequence where he takes the blade. Yeah, it's like forged by dwarves in the cave of or like Benedict He had to like fight the yeah the zombie to get it. It was sick. And that's his, what I want in his head. That's because that scene was so cool. He after he def- he chops off the head, yeah. and then puts his head where his ass is. He looks over to the right, and the camera pans to himself standing there. And what's actually happening, which is like basically this is all going on in his mind. He he wins the battle in his mind. Yeah, you know, it was a test. So cool. Yeah. Sometimes the film leaves you guessing what's real and what's not real. It was just a, such a clever way to show. A, like a dream sequence yeah a I, trial. Loved, I loved that yeah yep it's all true all of it <laughs> well we couldn't recommend it enough here at the cult the tcp tcp it's a cult podcast glowing review we couldn't recommend it enough at tcp tcp we can't even say the tcp do you know that because it's repeating the twice the, the cult podcast the, the cult podcast I always want to say the TCP, but it's not that. It's the just, CP. It's just the CP. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> yeah. I can't wait to see. I hope. I know that uh, Robert's been wanting to do Nosferatu for some time. Yeah. Apparently that he put that on hold to do this. I think this might open the door for him. to I, do. Well, it should. I think he didn't. He only didn't do Nosferatu because he couldn't get it uh, greenlit. Yeah. yeah. So it was, that's why he made. But that's why this might open the door. Yeah, people will see. I don't know how this has been doing at the box office. I assume it's doing well. I could actually take a peek. But I think people are pretty jazzed on it. It's gotten great reviews. Screen Rant says it's it's bombed. <laughs> Twelve million opening weekend. That's tough. But here's to hoping it's got legs. Six hours ago, it reaches twenty three million worldwide. Oof. I feel like it'll make its money back, but it's probably going to be sluggish. And we've talked about the difficulty before of... uh, It's like a Last Duel kind of situation, you know? I think the only reason Last Duel failed is because of marketing. Also, that wasn't an independent feature. Well, I I feel like uh, this was still an independent feature. Anyway, it's it's the the enigma of the art house blockbuster. Those things will probably never really work out, you know, inter Blade Runner 2049. So, but I think, I think word of mouth will spread. I think Robert Eggers will be fine. He'll scale back a little bit. 
do Nosferatu, do the other thing he was talking about. I can't remember what it was, but it wasn't Nordic. But I'm really glad we got The Northman. It was cool. Will you ever watch it again once it leaves theaters? Yeah. I'd love to have this on a... Disc? An Eggers collection. Are you kidding me? Like, give me some kind of, like, wait another film or two and then, like, get a 4K, 8K box set, you know? That'd be sick. 8K box. Yeah, I mean, like, five years from now, who knows? 16K. (laughs) That's what... 10 million K. (laughs) That's what what we're trying to do here. (laughs) 10 million Give it to me in VR. Give it to me in AR. (laughs) (laughs) Inject it into my brain (laughs) so I... Experience. Loaded into my neural interface that Elon's putting into my Twitter brain. 